Now there was no food in all the land because the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. No food whatsoever in these, whatsoever, meaning it wasn't growing abundantly, and so the people and the land, they were languishing. They were fainting. They did not have what they needed for their daily life, and likely many people were starving and famished. So, in this time, it's in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan. And in this way, in verse 13, implicit is in this verse, verse 13, is the fact that God is the one withholding the rain and the produce of the earth. God is the one withholding this rain and produce. Why do we say God? Because Matthew 5, 45 says, For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. God is the one who does so. Matthew 5, 45. And in this case, he's withholding it. Acts chapter 14, Acts 14, 8 to 18. The apostles are preaching to pagans who worship Zeus and other gods. And the apostles say this in 14, 15. Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you in order that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And in generations gone by, he permitted all nations to go their own ways. And yet, he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. It is from God. And even to pagans who worship idols, God is the ultimate provider of their needs. Not their idols, not even their own labor. It is God himself. In our passage, God had withheld it. And what, what does he do or why does he do this? He withholds it from sinners or unrepentant sinners. Just because there is abundance doesn't mean that God himself is blessing the people for their righteousness. That may be the case, but it may not be the case. In this case, he's withholding it from idolaters. He's withholding the rain and the fruitful seasons from them. In response, 14, And Joseph gathered all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the grain which they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. The inhabitants of these territories or nations, Egypt and Canaan, are buying grain from him and he's gathering all the money and putting it into Pharaoh's house, into Pharaoh's treasury. Pharaoh is the government, right? And then we have to ask, if that is the case, was Joseph, was Joseph being covetous? Was he being greedy? Was he extorting? Was he doing anything like this? Some say yes, but we cannot say yes. Amen. We cannot say yes because he's a righteous ruler. He's already been portrayed that way throughout. And in this case, too, there's nothing here that's impugning him, his character, nothing criticizing him. In fact, the people we will see later, they are happy with their treatment by Joseph and Pharaoh. They're happy with it. So in 14, we can't look at this negatively. It's not the covetousness of Joseph. He does not love money. It was because of the sale of the grain. It says, for the grain which they bought. They bought it. And it's right for there to be a proper transaction when goods are transferred from person to person or company to company. That's the way it should happen. In all cases, unless there is somebody with such a need that one wants to be generous. If one wants to be generous and we do encourage generosity, then it's up to the individual to do so. 
but it should not be mandated by the individual to do so. When it is mandated, then it's coercion, it's tyranny, it's not generosity and love. Fifteen. Actually, before we get to 15, in verse 14, there's an example of the proper collection of money. Another example of it in 2 Kings chapter 12, the proper godly collection of money, 2 Kings 12, 9 to 16, 2 Kings 12, 9. But Jehoiada the priest took a chest and bored a hole in its lid and put it beside the altar on the right side as one comes into the house of the Lord. And the priests who guarded the threshold put in it all the money which was brought into the house of the Lord. And when they saw that there was much money in the chest, the king's scribe and the high priest came up and tied it in bags and counted the money which was found in the house of the Lord. And they gave the money which was weighed out into the hands of those who did the work, who had the oversight of the house of the Lord, and they paid it out to the carpenters and the builders who worked on the house of the Lord, and to the masons and the stonecutters, and for buying timber and hewn stone to repair the damages to the house of the Lord, and for all that was laid out for the house to repair it. But there were not made for the house of the Lord silver cups, snuffers, bowls, trumpets, any vessels of gold or vessels of silver from the money which was brought into the house of the Lord. For they gave that to those who did the work, and with it they repaired the house of the Lord. Moreover, they did not require an accounting from the men into whose hand they gave the money to pay to those who did the work, for they dealt faithfully. The money from the guilt offerings and the money from the sin offerings was not brought into the house of the Lord. It was for the priests. That's the way of faithfulness. But in contrast, we have warnings of unfaithfulness. And that's not Joseph. Where there is unfaithfulness, it is clearly explained as such. For example, in John 12, verse 6. John 12, 6. Now, he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. He was a thief. Judas was a thief, and he used to pilfer, steal what was put into the money box. Also, it tells us in Titus 1, Titus 1, verse 7, that the overseer should not be fond of sordid gain. The overseer, the pastor, should not be fond of sordid gain. It's a sin. When pastors are in the ministry for the money, if they're not in the ministry for the truth, then it is sordid gain. If they don't believe the truth, have a conviction for the truth, and they don't preach that way, then they are in it for sordid gain. Not so with Joseph. Not so with him. He's not doing it because he wants the money. He's not a tyrant either. Now verse 15. 47, 15. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food, for why should we die in your presence? For our money is gone. They have no more money to spend, to buy, so they want food. They come to Joseph for this food. We notice that they don't come in chaos. It's not a mob. They're not threatening violence. They are actually talking to him respectfully, And there is a respectful and proper dialogue going back and forth between them. They even, toward the end of the chapter, when they become slaves, they don't rise up as a mob of slaves and say, you're mistreating us. They know that Joseph has been wise thus far. And they do know that Joseph does care for the people. His reputation is already known to the people. So that's why there is no multitude rising up against the leadership of the country in outrage. There is no outrage in that way here. There is a need and there is a dire concern, 
That's true. But there's no outrage, there's no chaos, there's no mayhem because they respect Joseph and the way that Pharaoh has appointed Joseph. They respect them. Verse 16, the, the solution, 16. Then Joseph said, give up your livestock and I will give you food for your livestock since your money is gone. Well, if they don't have money and they don't have crops, how are they going to take care of their livestock? Right. Unless they sell their livestock to Joseph, who does have. Correct? This way, he's going to preserve the life of the animals. This is not covetousness. This is preservation. And it is economics. You don't have, you cannot take care of, well then sell to me, and I'll take care of them, I'll make sure. Also in verse 16, when it says your money is gone, well, why was their money gone? Did they not do as Joseph did? Why in the years of plenty and in the years of want up to this point, and likely by this point we're probably in the, at the end of the fifth or in the sixth year that they are at this desperate point. There's still a couple of more years left, two more years of famine. If that's the case, why did they not save up enough money? They were told in advance, Pharaoh knew, Joseph was appointed, so enough of the people knew and they should have spread the word in the seven years of abundance, we should save up. And then in the years of famine, we should be very careful how we spend our money. (coughs) They didn't do it sufficiently. So they brought this desperation upon themselves. They brought it on themselves in that sense. Why is Joseph and why are some people, a few people prepared, but not them? 17. So they brought their livestock to Joseph and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses and the flocks and the herds and the donkeys. And he fed them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. So they get what they want. They get food enough to live for another year. But verse 18, like we said, this is probably the end of the fifth year into the sixth year, now approaching the seventh year. Verse 18, and when that year was ended, they came to him the next year and said to him, we will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent and the cattle are my Lord's. There is nothing left for my Lord except our bodies and our lands. Bodies and lands. Bodies means we'll sell ourselves to you as slaves. Right. Now, who is it that brings up this idea? They do. They do. They, do. they bring it up, our bodies and our lands. It's not a tyrant talking like this. It is the people who understand. They understand that their most pre- uh, precious possession, their own life, their own bodies, their livelihood within themselves as individuals and their properties, their landed properties, that land, th- that is most precious after their own bodies. That's all they have left. They present these and they want them as items of negotiation. Verse 19. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Why should we all die? It's not going to be good for the land of Egypt. When there's an abundance of people, that is a glory for a king. But in a paucity of people, that is his ruin. Why would the king want there to be so few people in his land? Therefore, they understand that. Everybody understands that. So buy us and our land for food, and we and our land will be slaves to Pharaoh. They are happy to be slaves of a kind and gentle, abundant or generous master. They are happy to be slaves to a good, kind, generous master. There's nothing wrong with that. 
Nothing wrong with that whatsoever. In the law of Moses, it made provision for such a thing. In the law of Moses, Exodus 21, 1 to 11. 21, 1 to 11. In 21, 5 and 6, it says the following. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out as a free man, then his master shall bring him to God, then he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him permanently. Serve him permanently whenever the time of emancipation occurs and he does not want to be emancipated, then this arrangement is in place. So this, this is not tyranny. This is not despotism. This is a loving relationship being established here because of desperation. It wasn't their first choice. It's better to be a free man than a slave comparatively speaking, but it's better to be a slave with a kind master than to be dead. That's what's going on in their mind. That's what's happening in Exodus 21, 1 to 11, right? And even this is the way of the New Testament, even in the New Testament. 1 Timothy 6, 1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2. 1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2. Let all who are under the yoke of slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine may not be spoken against. And let those who have believers as their masters not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but let them serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved, teach and preach these principles. In verse 1, if a believing slave has an unbelieving master, he should still give him all honor so that the gospel is not maligned. In verse 2, if the slave, believing slave, has a believing master, then the believing slave should all the more serve his master. Do any of these verses say slavery is evil and therefore you should just abandon your master and believing masters, you are sinning by owning a slave? So therefore, abolish slavery in your household? Does it say anything like that? There's no hint of that. There's no hint of it. It's talking about how to properly conduct that institution, not the abolition of the institution. Further, we come to verse 20 now. They asked for seed in verse 19. Now verse 20. We'll read 20 to 26. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, For every Egyptian sold his field because the famine was severe upon them. Thus the land became Pharaoh's. And as for the people, he removed them to the cities from one end of Egypt's border to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had an allotment from Pharaoh, and they lived off the allotment which Pharaoh gave them. Therefore they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have today bought you and your land for Pharaoh, Now here is seed for you, and you may sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own for seed of the field, and for your food, and for those of your households, and as food for your little ones. So they said, You have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's slaves. And Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, Valid to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth, only the land of the priests did not become Pharaoh's. They sell themselves and their land. And then it says, in, that's in verse 20, everything 
belonged to Pharaoh, except the land of the priests. And the priests themselves did not become slaves. Well, isn't it better for the land to belong to Pharaoh than the king of Canaan? Or the king of Cush? Or the king of Arabia? And I'm saying king, but usually they had many kings who owned partial territories in these territories. Isn't it better for it to remain in Egyptian possession? And this is the way to do it. Otherwise, they could have sold it to foreigners, to neighboring nations, to buy part of the territory and just abolish the land of Egypt. Just get rid of it all. And merge it into other nations, surrounding nations. But it didn't happen that way. It kept its possession among the Egyptian people because it all belonged to Pharaoh. That's better than the other. Furthermore, he removed the people to the cities from one end of Egypt's border to the other. It doesn't tell us exactly why he did this, but if it is to make sure to make provision for them, to take care of them, then it is easier if the people are gathered together for this to take place for a temporary time. But it doesn't mean that they all were doing that because he did provide them seed and he gave them instruction to go into the fields and plant the seed because eventually the following year, because it was probably this was the seventh year when this negotiation is happening, that once they plant the seed, then the following summer or the following season, then they would have a harvest. It tells us also that the land of the priests he did not buy because there was no need for that since Pharaoh was obligated by allotment to take care of them. So there was no need since Pharaoh was already providing for the priests. The priests would have been, if they, these are religious priests, they would have been idolatrous ones, and that was Pharaoh's business. Joseph was doing whatever he needed to do, but Joseph, even though he was handling his own responsibilities in relation to Pharaoh, the guilt is on Pharaoh for whatever he does with his own money. Joseph can't control that. So there shouldn't be any blame on Joseph for doing this. But there's another way to understand this passage. The word for priest, the word for priest in the Old Testament on rare occasions is used for a political official. It's rarely used for a political official. And it may be that these are the nobility. These are the rulers of the nation, not the religious rulers. Because in the Hebrew language, the word it is a word that basically means an officer. Then the question is, who is the officer? Is he a political officer or is he a religious officer? If he's a religious officer, the Bible translations typically render that word as uh, priest, which has a religious connotation. An example of this in 2 Samuel 8.18, it says David's sons were, 2 Samuel 8.18, David's sons were chief ministers. Well, even the word minister. In English, minister can mean a religious minister or a political minister, correct? And that's why the translation, the NASB says, chief ministers, 2 Samuel 8.18. However, it is the same Hebrew word for priests, the word kohen. The same word for priest. But in that context, there's no way David's sons could be a religious officer. No way that they could be that because it was only to be the tribe of Levi and the family of Aaron who could function in that way. So it may also be the case here. And by the way, remember that Joseph married Zaphonath, uh, I'm sorry, Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On. 
in Genesis 41, 45. It may have been a religious officer's daughter, but it may also have been a political officer's daughter that he married. And this would also hold true in the book of Exodus, Exodus 2.16. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and Moses married Zipporah, right? Among the daughters. That may have been a religious officer, but it could also have been a political officer. And the political aspect of it, of Jethro or Ruel, he has both names. The father-in-law or Zipporah's father had these two names, Ruel and Jethro. The political aspect was in, it is manifested in Exodus 18 because he gives political advice to Moses in not bearing the burden of being the judge of all the people. Why don't you select capable men who will be judges for the people for the lower cases, for the minor crimes and the minor disputes. And then you handle all the major disputes as a political officer. He's giving political advice. All this to say that there's no need to impugn Joseph by protecting the priests in Egypt, whether religious or political officer, whatever type they are. And I bring up these points of accusation against Joseph because commentators sometimes are very, very reckless in finding a fault with the patriarchs, finding a fault with the saints of the Bible. They are apt to doing that because they're trying to minimize the standard of godliness so that they don't have a high standard of godliness themselves. That's often the reason why they do it. They're not reading the passages carefully and understanding it, a, a, a given passage, comparing one scripture with scripture. Okay, now, after buying them and after giving them seed, he gives them instructions, verse 24. At the harvest, you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh. A fifth to Pharaoh, why? In order to ensure that in future times, future famines that may not be as severe as this one, they have plenty. And that's what governments should do. They shouldn't be in debt, but they should have a surplus to be able to help their own people whenever there is a genuine time of need. It's not uh, debt rulership, but one that's surplus rulership. Pharaoh is doing it. If Pharaoh does it, then why can't those who are Christians, who claim to be Christians in governments all around the world, why don't they understand that? They ought to understand that. It's not wrong to receive tax money, tax revenue, but the question is how much and why? And how are they spending it? So, This was a statute that remained to this day, to the day of Moses, which means it's hundreds of years later between Joseph and Moses. Also, in verse 25, You have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's slaves. This removes... All accusations against Joseph, the godly man. There is no way that the people thought Joseph was exploiting them. The people didn't think Joseph was exploiting them, mistreating them, abusing them, oppressing them, suppressing them. He wasn't doing anything like that. He was taking care of them in the best way strategically possible for all the people in the country. And if that's the case, if the people themselves, the Egyptians, the pagan people themselves understand this properly, then we should too. Now 27, 27 to 31. Now Israel lived in the land of Egypt, in Goshen, and they acquired property in it and were fruitful and became very 
numerous. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. When the time for Israel to die drew near, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Please, if I have found favor in your sight, place now your hand under my thigh and deal with me in kindness and faithfulness. Please do not bury me in Egypt. But when I lie down with my fathers, you shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. So he swore to him. Then Israel bowed in worship at the head of the bed. Israel as a nation. They live, Israel the patriarch and as a nation, they live in the land of Egypt. They acquire property in it, but they acquire it not to live there permanently, but temporarily. Notice though, Remember we said that the famine, or this part of the famine, was only the remaining years? Two years, by the time they migrate, there was five years. And then three years had passed with Israel and his clan living in Egypt. Now we're at the final two-year mark by 47, the last half of 47, the final two-year mark. Why didn't they, or why couldn't they, after five years, just return to Canaan. Why didn't they do that? Because this was God's appointed way, and Israel, or Jacob, he knew that they were supposed to remain there until the time God delivered them. Otherwise, it's very easy, after the five years of famine, to leave. They could have left. But they stayed there in obedience to God and waited for the purpose of God to come to fruition in due time. Meanwhile, they acquired property, were fruitful, and became very numerous. This is stated here, 47-27, also Exodus 1-7. But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. Since Moses is writing this, Genesis and Exodus, he is alive and inspired to know that this actually happened. That's why it's said in anticipation in 47.27. Because it didn't happen immediately that they became in the millions from 70 people to the millions. It did not happen immediately. It took some time. It took some generations. Okay, then 28 reminds us, as we said before, he lived there 17 years and a total life of 147 years. That lifespan should not be Incredulous. Skeptics of Scripture look at that and they look at it and read it in disbelief. But many years later, about 650 B.C., 600 B.C. or 650 B.C. roughly, it says this in 2 Chronicles 24, 15. Now, when Jehoiada reached a ripe old age, he died. He was 130 years old at his death. That's in a historical book, just like Genesis is historical, the book of 2 Chronicles. He lived to be 130 years old. But even today, we read sometimes of people who are over 100, 105, and even higher than that, even today. So if that's possible today, why could it not be possible then? This is no legendary document. It's a factual document. Verse 29 says, when the time for Israel to die drew near. It uses this other name, interchangeable name for the patriarch. His time to die drew near. From Genesis 3, 17 to 19, we learn that 
From dust you came, and to dust you shall return. And now Israel's time, or Jacob's time to die, is approaching. He knows it's his time. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 2 says, There is a time to give birth and a time to die. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 2. Sometimes we have some forewarning, that is, when health declines, we have forewarning of that. But at other times it happens suddenly, such as the foolish farmer. The foolish farmer of Luke 12, 13 to 21. The foolish farmer did not anticipate the sudden death he would experience. Luke 12, 13. And someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even... When one has an abundance, does his life consist of his possessions? And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a certain rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? And he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul, this very night, your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. In some, Hebrews 9.27 And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes the judgment. Die once, then there's judgment. Whether it happens gradually or suddenly, death awaits all of us, our time to draw near. So we should be thinking about that and preaching that so that people are prepared for the day of judgment, the judgment to come. Verse 29, it says that he called his son Joseph and said to him, Please, if I have found favor in your sight, place, your, place now your hand under my thigh and deal with me in kindness and faithfulness. Please do not bury me in Egypt. Okay, first we have this expression and practice of placing the hand under the thigh. This occurred also between the servant of Abraham and Abraham in Genesis 24, verse 2, when an oath was being sworn. That is a symbol of submission to the oath in light of the promise contained in the oath. The promise is the promise of the seed, the offspring of Abraham, the Christ, but the submission to it is that here, Joseph, understanding this promise, places his hand under the thigh of Jacob to submit to the promise, to submit to his commitment to that promise, to ensure that that takes place. That's one. The other thing we notice is, please do not bury me in Egypt. But where? Verse 30. But when I lie down with my fathers, you shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. This took place, this took place in Genesis 49. Genesis 49. The locality is mentioned here and then the actuality in the next chapter. The locality is mentioned in Genesis 49, 28. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel, and this is what their father said to them when he blessed them. He blessed them, every one with the blessing appropriate to him. Then he charged them and said to them, I am about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Egypt, which Abraham bought along with the field from Ephron the Hittite for a burial site. There they buried Abraham and his wife Sarah, 
There they buried Isaac and his wife Rebekah, and there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it purchased from the sons of Heth. When Jacob finished charging his sons, he drew his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then in chapter 50, it actually happens. Chapter 50 and verse 12. 50 verse 12. 12 to 14. And thus his sons did for him as he had charged them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham had bought along with the field for a burial site from Ephron the Hittite. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. Why does Jacob want to be buried in Canaan? Let's deal with the Canaanite part first. Why in Canaan? Because Canaan, as we said earlier, was a symbol, a shadow of heaven. So in faith, he wanted to be buried in Canaan as a sign of his faith. And he wanted everyone who remembered his burial to remember why he was buried there, buried in Canaan, because their hope was in heaven. Not in Canaan itself or not in the earth, but their hope was in heaven as Canaan was an illustration of heaven for its abundance and its prosperity that was gifted to them by God, just like heaven is gifted to us by God. That's the Canaanite part. What about the burial part? Why did he want to be buried? Because burial in the Bible is a symbol of the resurrection, the death of the body and then the resurrection of the body. As we daily put our bodies horizontal to sleep and then rise up, temporarily we are horizontal and then throughout the day we are risen, right? That's why the Bible calls it sleep. Like in the book of Acts chapter 7 verse 60 or in 1 Corinthians 11, 27 to 34, it says Sleep. First Thessalonians four, thirteen to eighteen, fallen asleep in Christ, fallen asleep in Jesus. So death is metaphorically sleep. And why is death metaphorically sleep? Daily sleep. Because there is a day of resurrection. So burial done in faith is a sign of the resurrection to come. Because the resurrection will make us stand upright and live forever in the presence of God. That's why Christians bury their dead. Or they ought to bury their dead. Because of this faith. Romans 14.23 Whatever is not from faith is sin. Whatever is not from faith is sin. Also... We don't burn our dead or cremate our dead. We don't burn our dead or cremate our dead because in the scripture, the burning of the body is joined to sin. Those who are burned in the Bible are associated with their sin, not with the faith and hope of resurrection. Genesis 38, Genesis 38, 24. Bring her out and let her be burned. Bring her out and let her be burned. Or Leviticus, Leviticus 21, verse 9. Leviticus 21, 9. Also, the daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by harlotry, she profanes her father. She shall be burned with fire. She burned with fire. Joshua 7.25. Joshua 7.25. Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. This is to Achan. And all Israel stoned them with stones, and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. 
burned them with fire after they stoned them with stones. And one more is the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 7.31. Jeremiah 7.31. And they have built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, and it did not come into my mind. So, burial, not burning for the Christian. Burial by a corpse, not burial of ashes because of cremation. Finally, in verse 31, he says, Swear to me, so he swore to him. Was it wrong for Jacob to ask his son to swear to him? Swear does not mean use profanity or curse words. The biblical use of this means to swear an oath, to make a solemn oath before God, a solemn declaration or promise before God. Jacob asked for it, and Joseph obliged. So he swore to him. This shows that swearing an oath in the name of the Lord is not a sin. And even in the New Testament, Jesus practiced this very thing. He swore, when he was called upon to swear, by the wicked high priest. The wicked high priest. Matthew 26, 63. Matthew 26, 63. But Jesus kept silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. I adjure you. To adjure means to make someone swear. You're putting somebody under oath. And did Jesus oblige? Yes. Verse 64. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And 1 Thessalonians 5. 1 Thessalonians 5, 27. I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. 1 Thessalonians 5, 27. So that itself is not wrong. But why? Did he not trust Joseph? No, not necessarily because he didn't trust Joseph, but he's bringing attention or drawing attention to how serious of a matter this is. How serious and important of a matter it is to Jacob to make sure also that Joseph and his brothers, they all carry this out. Because after he's dead, any number of things could happen. Oh, yeah. It's not necessarily because he distrusted Joseph. But one, to highlight how important this was. And then secondly, to ensure that it actually did happen. And we've already read that it did happen. Lastly, in verse 31, we see, Then Israel bowed in worship at the head of the bed. Between this verse, 47.31, and Hebrews, 10, uh, Hebrews 11.21, Genesis 47.31, and Hebrews 11.21, there is a difference, and we'll show the difference and then reconcile the difference. Here it says, Israel bowed in worship at the head of the bed. In Hebrews 11 and verse 21, it says the following, By faith Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. He worshipped and leaned on the top of his staff. Well, in 31, it says bed. In Hebrews 11.21, it says staff. Are we talking about the same incident? <clears throat> Those who think we are talking about the same incident, 47.31 of Genesis, 
The word for bed is a Hebrew word whose consonants are the same as the consonants for the Hebrew word for staff, staff or walking stick. It's the same word or same consonants. The vowels are not the same, but the consonants are the same. And in the time of the writing of the book of Genesis, they would not have represented their vowels in writing. They would have just had written by consonants. So it's called the consonantal text, only the consonants. And since the consonants of these two words, the word for bed and staff, are the same, they think that's how the confusion arose. And so therefore, there is a mistake in the Greek of Hebrews 11.21, and the apostle went with the mistake instead of trying to clarify and resolve it all. If that doesn't sit well with you, good. (laughs) But that's how many commentators propose to reconcile the two. However, it is better to reconcile the two by saying that in 4731, we're dealing with an earlier oath and an earlier time of worship after the oath, which was at the head of the bed. But then, before he dies, and he dies in chapter 49, some time passed, and another incident, another occasion occurred, and at that occasion... After he blessed his sons. Isn't that what Hebrews 11.21 says? After he blessed his sons. So after he blessed his sons, then he worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. He mustered up enough energy after that by reaching for his staff because he didn't want to worship God lying down, prostrate, and looking up. So he leans, he bends as much as he can on the top of his staff. He worships after blessing his sons in chapter 48. Uh, I'm sorry, yeah, 49. After he blesses his grandsons in 48 and his sons in 49. After those incidents, he worships on the top of his staff and then he breathes his last and dies. That is a better way to reconcile the two passages. That Hebrews 11.21 is describing what's not explicit in Genesis 49. He's explaining that in Hebrews 11:21. This is a lesson on being careful, very careful in the reading of the Bible and comparing one passage with another passage. Right. And whenever one's conclusion will violate the truthfulness of another passage of Scripture, or it violates the inspiration of God and the reliability of God, the authoritative nature of Scripture, if any interpretation violates that, we should dismiss it out of hand. Dismiss it immediately. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.